apologise if I don't feel seem quite as lively as usual. I'm feeling a bit under the weather, but um, I think we should get to the end of uh, the, the next hour. One of the um, disconcerting things over the last few years has been a series of surveys of Christians in America which has revealed a really rather worrying phenomenon. Christians um, and uh, actually uh, uh, evangelical Christians in particular in America are increasingly very little different from the world around them. Uh, The theologian Michael Horton, for instance, summarised that by saying that the pollsters hand us survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centred and sexually immoral as the world in general. In areas such as divorce or sexual morality, charitable giving, evangelicals are very little better, in some areas actually even worse in America than uh, uh, the people around them. They score worse on racism, for instance. Well, thank God in this country, I don't think things are quite as bad as, uh, as that, but uh, we certainly cannot afford to be complacent. Having been a Christian for more than uh, 20 years now, I, I think I have seen the Christian community becoming a little bit more morally vulnerable and often, frankly, more immature than it, than it once was. And some of that undoubtedly is because our society as a whole has deteriorated in a number of ways so that uh, uh, there's an increased number of people with really quite significant emotional damage as a result of, uh, of, of uh, uh, especially the breakdown in the family that our society as a whole no longer supports Christians in their, in their moral stance and in their efforts. And that, that can make it more difficult for Christians, frankly, to, uh, to live up to what they know they should live up to. But um, I don't want us to too lightly excuse ourselves. Some of us here have been Christians for decades and to be honest we have to admit that in some areas at least, that, that doesn't show much. We still struggle with the same sins that we did to, um, uh, right at the beginning. We're still about as selfish as our next door neighbours. You asked us how actually we have grown in godliness and holiness. Frankly, some of us will be scratching our heads to give an answer. Some of us here are relatively uh, new Christians. Perhaps in the, in the early days of excitement after our conversion, we felt carried along on the crest of the wave. But that wave breaks, doesn't it? And after that, we feel that, that, that um, um, long, backwards drag pulling us out to sea again. It can be really hard to resist. Why don't we grow then? Why, don't we, why, why aren't we more mature 
than, than we actually are. Ron Sider, in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, sets out what a very clear reason. He suggests that we've only told half of the Gospel. He says we're told about Christ's death on the cross, which pays for our sins. We're told about our need simply to trust Christ for our forgiveness. But we are never actually told the other half of the Gospel, that having trusted Christ, we must follow him. We must live in newness of life. We have peddled what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called, used to call cheap grace. Cheap grace which simply says only believe and you will be okay. Sider calls us to see afresh actually that there is a radical call to obedience if we are to follow Christ. And I'm sure there's a lot of truth in what, what, what he says. says it may be that we need to be clearer about our practical obedience, the obedience that is required of us, if we are to call ourselves Christians. But this morning, we're going to be thinking, actually, um, uh, about more fundamentally than that, how it is that the Bible says we become obedient as Christians, how we grow as Christians. More specifically, we're going to be looking actually at exactly what the Apostle Paul prays for Christians in order that they would grow. And it's not quite what we might think. We might think, you see, that uh, he would pray in uh, great detail for all sorts of aspects of their practical obedience. And in this letter to the Ephesians, he, is, he, he goes on, in fact, to talk to them about their practical Christian obedience. But that is not the thrust of his prayer for their growth. And there's a very important reason for that. He knows that at the deepest level, their Christian growth will only occur if something more fundamental is happening in their hearts. The heartbeat of Christian growth is to see Christ. Paul is praying for that. First of all, he's actually praying uh, in, in this uh, letter that they would know. Verse uh, uh, 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. When I was at school I studied French and I discovered that in French there are two quite distinct verbs that are translated in the English to know. One is savoir, it's uh, knowledge about something, it is objective knowledge of facts and understanding. And the other is connaître, which is knowledge, subjective knowledge in the sense of being familiar with a person or a thing. It's about personal relationship, much more than it's about facts. And it's that sort of knowing that Paul is talking about here. He wants them to know God better. He prays that God would give them, he says, a spirit of wisdom so that they would know God better. Often in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament especially, wisdom means just 
understanding God's world. It's focused on practical day-to-day affairs. But actually in Paul's writing, that word expands to take on new depths. For Paul, a fully Christian understanding of wisdom actually focuses on the wisdom of God in his great plan for salvation. For instance, uh, um, Paul in his letter to the, to the Romans sets out uh, that plan in great detail. He carefully explains how no one is righteous before God but how God has provided a way for us to be righteous before him, to be forgiven through Christ's death on the cross for our sins. Here Paul then describes how it is faith, trust in Christ, which, which, which wins that forgiveness. God gives forgiveness to those who simply trust him. He describes then how God gives us his Holy Spirit, which, which um, brings us into a personal father-child relationship with, with God, makes us cry out Father to him from our hearts and how it is that work of the Holy Spirit that actually transforms our lives and makes us new. He goes on in chapter 9 onwards in in Romans to describe the painful fact that not everybody finds that. Not everybody is so. Not everybody can look forward to that that great final day of being reunited with God. But uh, God has plans that finally will bear fruit in people from every tribe and nation in the, in the whole world coming and glorifying him. And it's at the end of that long explanation of God's whole purposes for uh, his world and his people that he says this in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It is that that Paul sees as God's greatest wisdom. The wisdom that he wants them to know. Paul prays for them that they would have the spirit of wisdom. That they would see the glory of the way that God works in this world. No doubt in the small practical details of the world. But most especially in the great overarching way in which God has determined that he will save an innumerable throng of people for himself and restore his very creation so that there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death or dying. I praise this Lord. God will give you a spirit of wisdom. She's his genius in that. And the spirit, he says, of uh, revelation. And once again, sometimes Paul uses that that, that word revelation to, to mean just simply um, local insights into how God is working here and now. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, for instance, Paul says that it was in response to a revelation that he went down to, to uh, Jerusalem on one occasion. 
But he uses that word in a far grander way too. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25, for instance, Paul describes Jesus Christ himself as the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. It is seeing, you see, um, having revealed to us that Jesus and how he is the centre of God's purposes, how he uh, um, uh, explains what was up to then a mystery. How can I be forgiven by a holy God? How can I be reunited with him? How can I find happiness? How can I have hope? How can I know the living God? Jesus gives the answer to all of those questions. He is the answer to the mystery. He is the revelation of God. Paul prays, you see, that they would understand God's wisdom in his whole plan of salvation, that they would, they, they would see how Jesus reveals the answers to the deepest uh, questions of life and that in doing so, they would know God better. That's what he says, isn't it? You see? I keep asking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that we will know him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we will know him as the glorious Father, as he describes him. Because he knows that as we really know that God, our lives will be transformed. Our lives will be changed. Central part of that, uh, that growth in knowledge of God, of course, comes as we study our Bibles. Regular Bible study is one of the most important ingredients for Christian growth that there is. Sermons are no substitutes. If, you are, if your regular diet is no, nothing more than what you hear on Sunday, then I'm not surprised that your growth is retarded. Half an hour of listening once a week is not going to change our lives. Eagerly searching God's word for his wisdom and new revealed uh, revelations about Christ will change our lives. And that is the central focus of Paul's prayer. Is it the central focus of your prayer? Is it a real focus for, for your prayer for yourself before you open this? God, please show us your truth so that I can know you more. For other people that you know, God, please show them. Give them a hunger. Give them a yearning. Give them an eagerness and an insight when they open the Bible so that they will know the God of Jesus, the glorious Father. 
Christian growth comes from knowing. Knowing not in the sense of facts, but in the sense of familiar relationship. The psalmist uh, said, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. What do we pray for? And the second thing that Paul says he prays for is that they will see. Verse 18, for instance. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. According to Paul, our hearts see. We know what he means. He means that sometimes actually truths penetrate our hearts so that actually light dawns into the very core of our being. Too often light, um, uh, the light that does get into our hearts is frankly dull and grey. Barely enlivens us at all. It's as if the swirling moorland mists shrouded our hearts, freezing us, disorienting us, so that we, we lose sight of any uh, landmark. And it just feels like we're wading through bogs. Paul says, I pray that God would lift that cloud. I pray that God would shine that, uh, his sunlight through the fog and that it would evaporate. That, that you would see the whole marvellous panorama of God's truth and God's plan. The New Living Translation puts it that our hearts would be flooded with light. And that clearing of the mists, says Paul, will reveal certain specific things. It will reveal our hope, first of all. Did you see that? The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in all that you may know the hope to which he has called you. God gives us promises here and now that we can set our hopes on. That we will persevere as Christians that nothing will happen to us, that God cannot turn to good despite the reality of evil, that God, the God of all comfort, will comfort us in all our troubles as we come to him, that, that anything given up for Christ will be recompensed both in this life and in the life to come, said Jesus. But uh, the, the, the greatest, um, um, uh, Paul's greatest use of the word hope is about our hope in eternity. That God will make that new heaven and new earth. That God will raise us up if we have followed Christ. Will forgive us, will put us in that new creation. That God himself will wipe away every tear and fill us with delight and awe and love and and contentment. And that that resurrection life will be never spoiled, never cut short, but will, will continue increasing forever and ever. I, I think there's a real loss of that central Christian hope in our world. I think there's a loss of hope in a much broader scale. It's one of the reasons why so many people, I think, devote their lives to grabbing what they can now because they've got no confidence that uh, uh, giving up anything will lead to greater satisfaction in the future. There's so much despair out there in the world. There need not be the same habit of life amongst us.
Let me read you a poem written by a young man who was spiritually searching for some time but finally gave up and committed suicide. Lost in a world of darkness without a guiding light seeking a friend to help my struggling, failing plight. Now all of you good people just go on passing by leaving me with nothing but this lonely will to die. But out of my grief and anguish perhaps some wandering boy will see long after I have left this world and build his own life strong and good and free. It's deeply poignant, isn't it? Here's a man who desperately wanted to see and yet he didn't. He saw enough to know that perhaps others could see and build a life which was strong and good and free. See, we, we, we here are presented with that vision. We are presented with that hope that that poor young man never saw. But we just do not appreciate the glory and the riches of what God has given us. We live in this mist, this miasma. Have not really grasped the glorious vision that God sets before us. I pray that God will flood your hearts with light, says Paul, so that you'll know the hope to which he's called you. He prays as well that they would know God's riches so that you'd know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He, uh, um, that, 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 that phrase actually is very special to me because it doesn't quite say exactly what we expect it to say. We expect Paul to be talking about our riches which would be lovely and, and um, heaven is described as treasure and riches elsewhere. But he's not here talking about that. He's talking about God's riches, God's inheritance. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would see what a treasure God's people are to him. God has promised himself an inheritance. It's us. And to God, that is that is deeply rich. And that, that is riches for us of a, of a different sort. It is riches that because we discover that we are treasured. We are deeply valuable to God. We are God's inheritance. We are what he's put us, what God has put aside and said, they will be mine. When the whole of this world comes to an end, 
and I recreate a new world. In that new life, what I will inherit is them. And they are deeply rich. Very deep riches for me, says God. Can you believe that? Can you believe that that's how God looks on you? That God has put his mark on you as his inheritance. God looks down and delights in you. I pray that your heart will be flooded with light. You see that, says Paul. How precious you are. And he wants us to see as well God's power. Pray that you would uh, know the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the ones that come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There is so much in that in that but there are three great acts of power that God has done in that passage. First and fundamentally, he has raised Christ from the dead. In Christ, God broke the power of death and raised him from the dead. Death no longer rules now. But secondly, he not only did that, he, he um, uh, exalted Christ to his own right hand so that he now is, a, is seated a far above any other power that we can imagine whether human or spiritual a, po- a lesson upon the perhaps in general election week and then thirdly God gave Christ the power personally to rule over his whole universe for his church Extraordinary little uh, um, phrase that in the end of uh, verse 22. All of that incomparable power is now exercised by Jesus Christ for us who believe, says Paul. The power by which God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, um, exalted him to his right hand and bestowed on Jesus the right to rule over the whole universe is like the power that we can know operating in our hearts. I know it feels like a struggle sometimes. I know that uh, uh, sometimes it it is difficult to believe either that we have been changed particularly or that we can be changed in the future. 
But I tell you what, if your heart has been changed so that you love Christ, God has done a resurrection miracle already in your heart. And I tell you, He can continue to do that miracle. If the eyes of our hearts are flooded with light and we see God's Now you know, um, if any one of us is uh, at all spiritually sensitive, we will be deeply aware of our weaknesses and our failures. We will be embarrassed, even if the statistics come from America. The Christians are so little different from the world around For us in this country, we'll be deeply concerned and worried, I hope. But we must not get to that situation. But here's the key. Here's the key to overcoming our sins and failures. Key to being different. That we would know God know Christ see his wisdom that we would see the hope which we call for the riches that we are to God the power that God offers us as he illuminates our hearts yes by all means pray Pray earnestly about that sin that you struggle with. Pray earnestly for the specific sin that you, 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 your friend struggles with. Perhaps for our, our, our weaknesses here as a church. Pray earnestly and specifically about those. But pray more than anything centrally that we would know God. That we would have a hunger for him and that God would clear those mists away and flood our hearts with light. That is what truly, really transforms believers. There's a lovely little story in the Gospels about a man called Bartimaeus. He was a bit of a bit awkward, a bit of a nuisance. He was blind. He couldn't see. He shouted and hollered at Jesus and the disciples were inclined to, to get him to go away. Jesus went up to him and he said, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus knew. He said, Lord, I want to see. And then Mark just reports one other thing after that, after he was healed. Mark says, he got up and followed Jesus. Because that's what you do when you see. You can't do anything else.